0: What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit down with Chris Kovner, the co-founder and co-CEO of Eureka Productions. I had never met Chris before. I've been a fan. I've been a fan of Eureka, that's for sure. They have had some of the most inventive series and original formats we have seen over the last few years. They have been on a run. I have been envious of their slate for quite some time. So this was great. Uh, And I'm talking about shows we all know. I'm talking about Holy Moly on ABC, Dating Around on Netflix, which I believe was the first dating show Netflix ever greenlit, The Real Dirty Dancing, Frogger, Finding Magic Mike for HBO Max. They're going to bring back The Mole for Netflix, and they are behind... The Real Love Boat, which is gonna be launching soon in the US on CBS, and also they have an Australian version on Network 10. And that's part of the backstory of Eureka. They are an Australian and US-based company. So the company was founded in 2016 by Chris and his partner, Paul Franklin. They both serve as co-CEOs. And the business operates out of the US and Australia with headquarters in both Los Angeles and Sydney. When I talked to Chris, he was in the LA office, the US headquarters here in Los Angeles. We got to get inside his process. How do these great ideas come to be? What works best for him when it comes to development? Any tips that he can offer some of us when it comes to pitching and what he has found to be most effective when he brings a project into the room? Great conversation. This is my sit down with Chris Kovner. I hope you enjoy it. I have to start here. I understand through a mutual friend that you are just a big, a pop culture geek, if not more than I am. Is this true? Can you confirm? I
1: think absolutely. Uh, I'm a bit of an American file, uh, certainly into my pop culture. So yeah, I'm looking forward to diving in.
0: Give me the backstory real quick. Life growing up in Australia, what part of Australia, what did your parents do? Give me a little bit on the backstory in the childhood.
1: Yeah, so um, I grew up in Sydney, Australia in the suburbs and my dad was uh, a vet um, and uh, a, vet, a veterinarian and he actually did like a six months a um in Gainesville, Florida of all places. So I think I was about 10 years old and we moved to Gainesville, Florida and that's where I plugged my brain directly into the socket of American pop culture. So, you know, in Australia at the time, we had three, four TV networks. And then, you know, I arrived and it was the kind of boom of cable television, um, NBA basketball, Disneyland, all those great things were kind of happening, uh, well, in and around America at that time. And, and uh, you know, that's kind of where my, my love affair of this country and um, obviously the TV industry kind of began. And then what was interesting, when I moved back to Australia, um, Australian cable television was first starting. Um, and at that stage, it was pretty much just all the American channels piped into Australia. And my family was one of the first to get it. So I literally was, you know, whether it was Conan O'Brien, Saturday Night Live, I couldn't get enough of this sort of, you know, the, the American programs. And obviously that was kind of coincided with the early days of American television. MTV was doing you know, Real World, uh, Road Rules, um, and then there were all these sort of dating shows like Blind Date, and I just, you know, I was obsessed with them.
0: Now, were you kind of on an island at that point, getting sucked up in American television, or was this what all the teenage young tween kids were doing at the time?
1: I think, you know, I was particularly fascinated by it. I think, um, you know, the Australian TV industry and the Australian culture, I always think is a little bit of a kind of a merger of um, British culture and American culture. And growing up, uh, we received a lot of British programming and then a lot of American programming like Friends and Seinfeld. So I think, you know, when people ask me about the sensibilities of Australia, I kind of feel like they're in between those two cultures. So I think, You know, I was specifically very focused on, you know, American culture and everything that came along with it and particularly television. I think, you know, um, while a lot of Australian culture is, is centered around sport and I love my sport, I was specifically focused on and particularly American comedy was something I was fascinated with.
0: It's funny you say American comedy, because I was just about to kind of jump into that, talking about the differences between, or the cross-section between American and, and Brit culture. Where does the comedy rest on that Venn diagram? Does it skew closer to one than the other?
1: Yeah, listen, it's interesting. I, I if I, If I look at Australian comedy, I would say it certainly sits a little bit more in that sort of sarcastic British style. But if you look at Australian reality, that is certainly more... Um, defined by you know the American influence Mm. and what was you know the the way that you know I can I saw this playing out in practice was I was part of the adaptation of The Apprentice in Australia and the first series we actually based it on the UK series which is a fantastic series Um, it's it sort of was a mild success we then pivoted And then kind of um, based it on the American sort of sensibility, the more like the sharks going after each other, the more cutthroat style. And it was a huge success. So just that sort of instance alone shows you how, you know, the the slight tweaks of the the cultural dial can really have a big influence on, on the TV we produce in Australia.
0: That's, that's fascinating because yeah, I could see on one hand how the scripted projects in Australia might skew tonally more British, but if you sought out influences from American culture, specifically at the dawn of the reality TV boom, I could see how that would then shape the tone of reality television for decades to come
1: in Australia.
0: If the early American shows were the influence, not the early British reality formats were the influence.
1: Exactly. that you're spot on.
0: So you get exposed to American pop culture. You talk NBA basketball, you're in Gainesville for that period of time, which it doesn't get much more American than
1: than Florida
0: for better or worse. Uh, yeah. so what, what, what was like the show? What was the show that you remember falling in love with that made you think, Oh, I want to be involved in this world one day or a movie. Um,
1: you know, I, if I go back to the the moment that I kind of really fell in love with reality television, it's cliche to say, it. it's probably a very, uh, a very, um, trodden on answer but it's I think it has to be Survivor that Mm. first season of Survivor when that theme song started and Richard Hatch was scheming on the beach it just felt like unlike anything I'd seen before and and that is something I was so passionate about and I think the creativity that went into that show and you know I guess unscripted shows in in general was just something I was so um mesmerized by that we effectively what survival was doing and what I I hope we do still today at Eureka is well build and I think that show was the first time that I just looked at something and could see this kind of constructed world that was so beautifully thought out and put together and then obviously you watch kind of once you built that sandbox it all play out so I think that's the show that kind of um I had the sort of that that the love affair of reality with mm. and then um, if I look at my kind of comedic sensibility I I just I loved the Simpsons growing up mm. Conan O'Brien and and then probably more recently the UK US office and that subvertive comedy that kind of you know was was Prevalent with this in the Simpsons and Conan O'Brien and that sort of thing is sort of what I like to interweave in some of the things that we produce today.
0: No, it's it's clear. And also you want to talk about world creation. I mean, The Simpsons is, you know, probably on the top five list of the best examples of that in, in the history of scripted television for sure. A
1: hundred percent. I mean, you're more in love with the the kind of the outsider characters, the kind of the that all but the Simpsons world, and that says a lot.
0: Early stages of your career. You know, at least as as what I could see online, it seemed like you you were mentioning earlier doing the Australian local version of The Apprentice. It seems like yep. the early shows you worked on were formats that were either British or American formats that started getting set up in Australia. Was that what the dawn of Australian reality TV was? were Were there like hit Australian reality formats, you know of of their own, or did it start with just bringing in the the American and British legacy projects?
1: Yeah, traditionally, Australia is a third-party marketplace which kind of imports a huge amount of those formats. The first job I ever had in television was at a company called Grundy. And Reg Grundy is sort of very much known as the godfather of Australian TV. And literally what he used to do back in the day, and I'm thinking kind of 50s, 60s, was fly to the US, literally sit there with a recorder, tape, what was on on television and come back to Australia and make it, you know, I think format licenses be damned. I think, um, you know, Wait, wait, wait,
0: hold on. So what was like the most egregious example of this, of him just completely ripping off? Listen,
1: I'm positive that since his success in Meteoric Rise, he's then gone back and kind of got the the various rights uh, (laughs) that were required. But, you know, everything from um, Wheel of Fortune was his, Price is Right, you know, so many um, blankety blanks, uh, which is known as the match game. Mm. So many of it, like kind of these game shows were sort of imported by by Reg Grundy. And he's since passed away, but he started this amazing legacy of original production that took place in Australia. The first job that I ever had was um, at his company called Grundy. Uh, and I was working on Wheel of Fortune, actually writing the puzzles and operating the letterboard for that show. Um, so I, I was my first ever job was on one of the probably the most famous game show formats out there, and since that time, you know, I've worked on um, you know everything from Idol to Biggest Loser to Master Chef, um, and it's certainly been in you know formats is sort of what I've kind of grown up with and know so well, and and am actually really passionate about because to me. Uh, the the kind of the the most refined moment is the best example of world building you can possibly do in in our um industry
0: i so you you start working at grundy you work your way up you're now working on various productions out there Mm -hmm. what was like the next kind of like executive job like what first gave you the opportunity to kind of present your own ideas as a creator
1: yeah so i actually um I, uh, I I did a university exchange in Canada, and that led me to working in the Canadian industry very uh, briefly. I worked for about a year on Canadian Idol, and that was one of the first um, first uh, series of that that format in Canada. And then um, Grundy called me over and and called me back, and they said um, we are looking to get into digital media. This would have been in two thousand and five. Maybe we're looking to get into digital media. We don't know what digital media is, but you're a young you're a young dude. You know what the interwebs are. Uh, why don't you come back from Canada and you know get out your get out your uh, camera and get your edit software and create some digital media for us. Um, and so it was a huge opportunity for me to own my own space and division uh, at a very young age. And have, frankly, a lot of freedom because no one knew what they were doing, including me, by the way. But no one in the company knew what they were doing. Frankly, no one in the industry knew what digital media really meant. They just knew that they should have a website and they should be creating content. So I came back to Australia, um, continued working at Grundy, which had been bought by Fremantle Media and turned into Fremantle Media. And You you can see the trajectory of Mm -hmm. of, uh, my relationship with that company, but... um, But it meant that I was out there shooting content. We were shooting backstage stuff for Idol. We were shooting things for The Biggest Loser. And then all of a sudden, um, a team that was just me and then me and an editor. And then literally within 18 months was probably 15 people um, all working away, creating this content because it was a really hungry beast at that time. And it was at a time when the production companies made a lot of that material whereby, as you would know, a lot of that now rests with the network. But right.
0: Why and you, and, that- and back in the day, you were actually, actually as the production company, able to monetize off, yeah, off exactly. that content <laughs> and all the other rights in and around your show, which no longer is yeah. on the table.
1: Exactly. I mean, it was a really lucrative business. Um, and one that I was able to literally kind of create these mini pods of content, which I think was a li- where I fell in love with the development process and coming up with a with a show and building it, albeit it had the leverage of a bigger brand attached to it. But it was something that, you know, it was a hugely creative job. And I, I was super lucky for that timing to work out for me.
0: But it's funny. It's, I don't know. Maybe this is off base. But as you say that, it kind of reminds me of that time where, yeah, the production companies really did do everything in-house as a production company, where they shot all the web stuff in-house. They did the integration deals and negotiated those in-house. They held onto their rights, and some of them sold the international rights on their own. They would took the, they'd take the home video rights at the time or any merchandising rights, and they would go look for brand deals with that, and they would do that in-house. And it's just interesting because not only were those huge business sectors right? To bring in money, not only for the production company, but also their network partner. But it also, I think, built a different level of, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, but a different level of like loyalty and connection to the show itself. Yeah. You know, like when you were like, I just think back to the old Reveille days when I was there and I was only at Reveille, Reveille for a very short time, yeah. but they were doing Biggest Loser and they had the rights to exploit everything in and around mm-hmm. Biggest Loser, and NBC was a you know a, a partner in all those things, but Reveille was selling the worked-out home video rights, and they were selling the show in all the different international markets and the remakes and the cookbook and all these things, and that company was all about Biggest Loser, and everyone in that building was like a diehard Biggest Loser zealot Because they had to be, because they had all these other sections of the company that were working simultaneously. And now you kind of just make the show and that's kind of all you're asked to do because it's kind of all you're allowed to do is you make the show and then every other like business avenue, I know you know this, but it's more for the audience, every other avenue out there that can be exploited, you're not really like allowed to be part of that conversation anymore.
1: It's a really good point. And I think it comes down to, um, you know, you, it's so hard to a launch a show, but then also maximize its potential. And to do that, you need a team who love, breathe, and sl- eat, breathe, and sleep that brand. Right. And the examples you gave, I mean, I, you know, I worked with Reverly because we were licensing The Biggest Loser from them. And I remember, you know, it, you know, Ben and HT leading that team, but they were so so focused on that sort of that that um. Wheel of, of value that those shows gave, um, and so it's a it's a good example. I mean, obviously the networks have taken a, a lot of that, and there. Are, listen, there are some networks who are are as passionate and understand what that kind of that full value potential could be. But you know, as a show creator, th- there's nothing better than seeing your brand just turn into something bigger than you ever imagined it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it always comes down to at the end of the day, who's who's most incentivized to see something happen. Mm-hmm. Who stands to profit the most? And as the production company, you are incentivized to get all these deals done to make sure that show is sold around the world, to make sure you get a cookbook out in stores, toys, whatever, right? Much more than a VP of business development or whatever is going to be incentivized to do it at a major conglomerate studio that holds onto the rights, that also holds onto the rights to all these, like, you know, feature films and That's scripted right. series, and has a ton of other projects That's in their right. lap. Whereas at your production company, you have like three projects where you could exploit yes. such things, and you're going to work overtime, and it's going to mean more to you. But yet, those rights don't sit with those companies anymore. Sorry, Chris. Don't know how no. I got us there.
1: <laughs> no, no. I Listen, I think it's it's a good point, and and I think you know the case can be made. Um, you know, with, with with particular brands that 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 we, we have, and, and and hopefully continue to create that, you know, sometimes we're, we are better positioned to exploit them. You know, like sometimes we're not like sometimes there's relationships there with the networks or the platforms, but um, you know, I think it's healthy to have the conversation because yeah. you know, when a, when a brand hits its maximized potential, everyone wins. That's you right. Know, it, it, it's, it's, it's great for all parties.
0: All right, so you're at Grundy, it becomes part of Fremantle. Mm-hmm. you eventually get over to shine yeah right so tell yeah. me what was there a direct line between those two steps or was yeah there, there, something- there
1: was so um you know and speaking of of your days at reveille so reveille which you know was later bought by liz murdoch and became shine was a big partner of us when we were at Fremantle, and we we um acquired the rights to masterchef mm-hmm. uh, and you know i was part of the group um but in particular my now business partner Paul Franklin was one of the lead architects to launch that show at Fremantle and um still to this day um the finale of series 1 of MasterChef in Australia is the highest rated show on Australian TV hist- in Australian TV history oh my god it was a mega hit and it was a mega hit not just one night a week that show was on five nights a week prime time so that was a show that um, particularly had a huge impact in Australia, a huge impact on Paul Franklin's career, um, but was also part of the, um, I guess, the the impetus for Liz Murdoch to start Shine Australia,
0: mm-hmm.
1: whereby she tapped uh, Mark Fennessy and Carl Fennessy, who were running Fremantle, Fremantle at the time, to move over. And those two, in turn, tapped paul franklin and myself to move over so i became the head of development at shine australia paul became the head of programming at shine australia and that that relationship that paul and i had uh, there was sort of i guess the seed of what our company at eureka has become in that you know he was the sort of the the executor the showrunner the person who oversaw the production and i was the sort of the person who was selling the shows, packaging the shows, building the mechanics of the format. Um, We had great success at Shine Australia. Um, We built that very quickly into the biggest production company in Australia, along with Carla Mark and a great team there. And what led me to move to the the US was about two and a half years in, um, we were, Paul Franklin and myself were asked to move to Australia to work at then Shine America. Just, move
0: to move to America,
1: exactly. Yeah, yeah. Move. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Move to the move to LA um, to uh, to work at um, Shine America. I was running um, development for for Shine America, and Paul was running programming. And that's where we kind of it was a great great way to really be parachuted into the middle of the American unscripted industry. So right away we were working on shows like Master Chef, The Biggest Loser, and kind of working with um Eden Gaha who was the president of that company at that time and um you know we've never looked back really about you know um you know i guess embracing the unscripted industry in I, the
0: us i mean i feel like you could chris i feel like you could sell a whole scripted comedy on on just you guys coming in from australia at that era of reality tv coming out into the american market for the first time and having to now learn the rituals how the pitch meetings, I mean, this is at the heyday now of the business too. You know, it's like Mike Darnell is still running Fox. I mean, it's like yep. that era of the business. And now you guys are having to come in to like, learn the culture and the protocols or the lack thereof yep. in terms of selling shows. T- talk to me about immersing yourself into the the space out here.
1: You know what? It was a, it, like, it was still one of the best periods of my life. And uh, you know, I don't take it for granted. So I was coming from australia has got a great TV industry, but as I said before, there's four networks. Um, and traditionally they buy third-party formats. You know, they do third-party formats probably better than anyone in the world. They do them extremely well. They're fantastically made shows, but the opportunity to sh- to sell original concepts is really difficult. So all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're parachuted into the US and you know, there was it was a really hungry beast at that time. You know, you had all these networks wanting, you know, big new shows, um and it was. I, I still remember. I'd go to work and I'd go home completely wiped, and just have these amazing dreams about what was going on. And it was really my brain's just trying to connect all the dots. You know, agents aren't a thing in Australia. Um, you know there's like when you when you talk about a buyer at a network in Australia there's probably two maybe three of them you come to Australia there's like layers of different execs that you have to deal with different processes development steps you know um, uh, yeah but it was and and I and I look back at that time and I remember understanding that it would take a little bit of time to, to prove myself but equally Shine was going through a stage where we had to prove ourselves and I gave ourselves really 18 months to prove ourselves. And, and what I mean by that is every pitch that we did, even if we didn't sell it just had to be world-class because the way that I thought about it, it was like, you know, buy 10 coffees, get, get the next one free every time we were going into a pitch, even if we didn't sell it, it was like punching a card, that these guys are serious and these guys know what they're doing. And so that's what I just remember being the focus is like, yes, we want to sell shows, but more than that, we want to be known as a company that you need to hear their pitch because it's, you know, it's going to be of that standard. Um, So it was a a really incredible time. Um, You know, I didn't have kids at the time. I was, you know, I was, I was like, lots of dinners, lots of drinks, lots of parties, lots of, pitch meetings nonstop, but it was such a fun, fun time to throw myself into the business.
0: I know as you know, the, the person that ideates, the person that creates the ideas you talked earlier, kind of, you know, you come up with the ideas and then you develop and and you pitch them. I know it's kind of a broad question and it's probably not one way, obviously, because I'm in the same boat, but I, I love to hear your thoughts on this. Like, how do you find for you when you come up with an original idea, when you come yep. up with an original format or create an idea or create a concept how do you find most times? Because it's never one way. But how do you find most times those ideas find you? Is it you have like you start with the bad idea and then you kind of take it into like a development meeting and everyone kind of workshops it? You come out with something. Does, do you sit do you sit in a room by yourself for hours just like looking at the wall and it comes to you? Because I've had um, it come a million ways myself.
1: Yeah, yeah. Listen, I think I think it's true that you know no two ideas come the same way. But I think for me there's a there's a bit of a pattern. Um, And I think it comes from a lot of the things that you talked about almost subconsciously swirling around and then a moment where I feel like, you know, I can see the idea and I can feel that that we've cracked it. So what I mean by that is, you know, your experiences on other shows, Mm. your discussions with networks, just watching TV, like it's kind of like. Imagine like it's this big tank and all these things are swirling around. So you're kind of coming at a new idea with, you know, yes, this is what, you know, various streamers or networks are looking for. I saw this work on a show, it didn't quite it quite work, but there was something there. Um, you know, someone had a funny experience that they told me about last, you know, last week at dinner. All of that is kind of the foundation of, of a great new idea. But truthfully, what I do a lot of is I just try and blank out time in my diary. And it is idea that. Like it literally is like, I look at our slate, I look at what's coming and I go, okay, post October, we've we've got a bit of time, we've got bandwidth, what, what's that show gonna be? And then it's kind of like a lot of like just play. It's play with a whiteboard, it's, it's searching online, it's looking at things. It's like, we talked about pop culture, it's like literally looking at areas of pop culture, and then the idea often just like hits me as in like I can like where, where I, I kind of know when I think, this is me personally." Yeah, that I've got the idea there. And then it's like, I find it's often one other element. It might be a great title or a great piece of talent. And once that, that idea and that kind of other element connect you feel like you've got something we don't pitch a lot and we don't take out a lot, but when we do take out something, I feel like it's something we've truly genuinely believe in. And we feel like it's almost inevitable because it's come from a place of such sort of um, development and ideation. So um, God, I guess. I,
0: ultimately- no, I was going to say, I mean, cause we've never met before. We've never talked before. And to hear your process and kind of your outlook on how many projects you take out at a time, how they come together, wanting to kind of have every pitch you take out be a calling card to the networks so they want to hear your pitches in the future. It's exactly the same philosophy I subscribe to. And I tell my team, like, I, I used to work at a place where I, you know, the kind of the corporate philosophy strategy was let's take out a hundred projects at a time that we kind of like and see what sticks, you know, play the numbers game. And I told myself, no, I'm going to take out 10 projects at a time that I absolutely love that I can put all my bandwidth into. So by the time we take it out, the materials are on point. We've poked all the holes in the format. And if people don't buy it, that's fine, but they're going to remember it. And I'm not, I'm not burning you know, how many how many uh, plate appearances I get with that network in the future. Because I always think about if you're the guy that's in there pitching five things a month, eventually that network's going to be like, how much can this guy really care about any one project if he's just pitching me another one next week? And how many more pitches do I want to take with this guy where I say no, too? It, that, that-
1: it, it, that's such a great philosophy and such great advice. And absolutely... You know how how I think about things. You know I've worked at places that kind of think of development a little bit like you know spaghetti factory where you're constantly just throwing things up. And my experience with that is you might sell things into funded development, so you might have someone go, "Okay, here's ten thousand dollars to take a next step," or "Here's a twenty thousand dollars to go cast the thing." But what you find, what you have, is a bunch of shows that you. And the networks are sort of in like with like no one has to have those shows if you're to your point if you're out there pitching 100 shows a year it's kind of like they're, they're things that have been in the oven probably not quite enough but if the networks know that we only take out 10 things a year you know maybe once a month and we have so much resources time money passion devoted to those things you feel like they have to take you seriously because, because the, you have such a self-belief in it too. Right. And the great thing about that is, is whenever you're questioned about in a pitch and good good networks question you, of course, like you have the answers to all the questions. Yeah, It's not like, a, ah, we'll figure that out. Or like, oh, good point. I hadn't thought of that. You've kind of like, you've, you've like looked at every war you've looked under the hood. You've, you've looked at it from every direction. You've thought about the title of, 15 different ways and so you know the reason why i get quite devastated when a show doesn't sell is because yep. like it feels like a piece of me and a piece of my company and a piece of my team because we've thrown so much into it
0: yeah um, how hard how hard are you on yourself because i'm i i'm extremely hard on myself and my wife chastises me for it it <laughs> tells me tells me to stop beating myself up and i can already see my two little girls have already like inherited the fox uh curse of <laughs> being too hard on yourself?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the hard things is, um, you know, a show really is just instantly sold. Like, it's not like you go into a pitch meeting and then everyone goes, this is fantastic. They high five and you've got a network deal and you're in production. You know, it's a, it's a process to sell a show. So um, I would never take it for granted that a show could be there, you know, heading towards a commission and then for whatever reason, it doesn't move ahead. So am I hard on myself? I think I've kind of de- I've I've had enough no's and enough sort of um thank you very much, but not quite now. Or we're intrigued by this, but we we don't quite love it. I've had enough of those to know that it's part of our job. So am I hard on myself? Probably for that afternoon or that day, but then yeah. I kind of, I move on. Um, I probably don't celebrate or we don't celebrate the victories enough because. As I said before, it's not like it's like one um, inflection moment where a show sold. It's kind of like a a, a kind of a bill to it. Mm. Um, but I, you know, I, I've kind of uh, been a bit more philosophical about it now about the passes because I look at some of the passes in the past, and they have led to other things. They've given me bandwidth to focus on mm. other shows. And holy moly is a great example of that. Is we had a big, big show that was about to be commissioned in Australia. It didn't go ahead. And to be honest, it put our company in dire straits um, from a commercial standpoint. And we were sort of super hungry, super focused. and and I think that passion, that focus and that almost desperation turned into Holy moly. And Holy moly was the show that like every as every person at Eureka from, you know, from the the two CEOs to the PA was focused on because we frankly we had nothing else to focus on at that mm. time. Mm. And that led to another success. So I guess yeah. my point is, is like often those, those moments, those passes can really hurt at the time, but in hindsight, they can just, they can free you up to do other things.
0: That's, I mean, that's a huge kind of an inflection point there, right? Like if holy moly doesn't make for whatever reason mm-hmm. or ABC doesn't see see yeah. the vision of it, yeah. which is a very broad out there idea. And I can't wait to talk about how you came up with it in a second. But if if you don't find a buyer that buys into that vision at that point, the future of of Eureka at that point yeah. is very different from what you were, yeah. from what you were saying.
1: 100%, listen, we, we'd had sort of really um, kind of critically acclaimed and hit shows before um, like dating around and, yeah. and, and others. Um, but that was a show that really put us on the map from a commercial standpoint with the broadcasters in the U S and if I look at our growth, I still think we would have got there, but it probably would have taken longer to get there. And I think we probably would have relied more solely on the Australian business. Yeah. So the Australian business from day one was extremely solid. It was the U S business that I think just took a little bit of time for people to, to kind of stop and think, okay, we knew these guys when they were at Shine America. but can they can they build something on their own outside of a bigger corporation? I um, mean holy moly was certainly the one that proved that we could have a really big commercial hit on a broadcast network. So yeah, you know, uh, every day, I thank you know Rob Mills, Tiffany Fagus, Jamie Silverman, that they took that swing on such a, a crazy idea. Yeah. Um, what, what, and they truly, you know, had a huge impact on the success of Eureka.
0: Well, let's talk about that. So we talked about how the ideas can come from various directions, but really it's like an amalgam of conversations, experiences that pop in your your mind at once. So mm-hmm. do you remember the exact moment, exactly where you were when the yep. holy moly vision flashed before your eyes?
1: Yep, I do. So We just finished producing the Australian version of NBC's um, Spartan Ultimate Team Challenge. If you remember that show, it ran for a couple of seasons on NBC. So we are producing the Australian version and it's a great format and a great brand. But I remember being on the set of that and it's like this huge, big construction with these big obstacles. And I remember walking around and seeing all the casts and they were all six foot three (laughs) built like trucks and just Adonises of humans. And I remember thinking to myself, this isn't relatable. And and I, I wasn't thinking the show was doomed by any means, but I just remember going, is, is the average person going to watch these kind of, these specimens of humans and be able to really relate about their experiences? And so it was that moment that I kind of decided, okay, what is something that is so broad that everyone can do? Um, And it was about probably two days where I just literally was listing. What is something that can tap into this kind of this fantastical world of obstacles and that sort of thing, but anyone can do your grandmother, your children, you know, people who of all different body types can do. Um, and, you know, I still remember I was sitting in the Sydney office of Eureka and I was like, okay, it's miniature golf. I know it in my gut, it's miniature golf. Um, and then what I did is I asked the development team, I remember them looking at me like I was crazy, but I said, <laughs> can you please put on a dot, Put sorry, put on a map, a dot for every miniature golf um, course in America, just just put a, put a dot on. And then we like uh, you know after grizzling and you know spending a few days doing it we then put that map up and it was like literally red dots in a consistent wave across the country from you know east to west it was just and that's when I just knew in my gut we had something because it, did, it wasn't coastal it wasn't elitist it was and you know I, I the way I used to talk about it is like Whenever you say miniature golf to people, they smile and they have a memory. Yeah. And that memory could be a first date. That memory could be going on vacation with their family. But very few people think miniature golf. Like I have a, I have a horrible experience about that. Maybe there's a couple. Um, but, but that's really where the the genesis came from. It was seeing a world that was out there, this big physical competition world and going, how do we make it so relatable?
0: Unbelievable. Okay. Again, this is now the cross-section of you being a creator, but also you being a pop culture junkie. Like yeah. looking at the Eureka Slate, you guys have these projects that are tied to famous pop culture yep. titles, right? So, you know, just for the audience here, we have The Real Dirty Dancing, Frogger, Finding Magic Mike, and the upcoming The Real Love Boat, right? Yep. So are these all from Chris, the the TV film geek being like, okay, I love these movies and properties. I want to tackle these. So I'm going to go chase the rights and pitch the rights holders, this idea that we've worked on for for weeks and weeks, or did they find you? Like, let's start with Frogger, for example. How on earth does Frogger, which was developed by Konami, like the eighties arcade game, how do you even begin to start hunting down the rights for that? Or even like come up with the idea to do Frogger? How did that come to be?
1: Um, Okay, I'll give you the I'll give you the the real story of how Frogger came about, and it came about uh, through a big night at MIPCOM um, <laughs> and the morning after. So, um, you know, I'm less concerned about the kind of the the I I mean the IPs is obviously important, but I'm a I'm really interested in how brands make people feel and the nostalgic. The nostalgic value of those brands, um, and when I, you know, and so with with Frogger, for instance, um, it was a big night at MIPCOM. I woke up the next day with a hangover and already late to my meetings. I was running through the convention center. Which means you're
0: last- doing, which means you're doing MIPCOM, right?
1: Yeah, that's that's an old school approach to MIPCOM. I think I'm more sensible these days, but this was an old school approach to MIPCOM. I was sort of. I was sweaty, hungover, lanyard flapping in my face, running through the convention center, trying to find my next meeting. And literally like lost looking at a kind of a badly folded map. I looked up and there was a giant logo of Frogger. And Konami at the time were trying to pitch the show as an animated series. But in that one moment- Oh my God. And I saw this kind of smiling frog and those words Frogger, I was like, I just knew that was it. I just knew that that would have, you know, obviously once again, just like miniature golf, you just say the words Frogger and you have this like feeling of nostalgia and playing that as a kid and the the music, and I also love that that brand because you can instantly imagine what a TV show like that would be.
0: And you and and you like Seinfeld, so you know the Seinfeld episode but as it, well. It, yeah.
1: yeah, the George Costanza crossing the road. I mean, it's one of the greatest episodes of Seinfeld. So um so. I didn't have the meeting at MIP. I took the card, put it in my uh, jacket pocket and kept running towards my meeting. And then um, it was about six months of convincing the people of Konami that we cared enough about their brand that that we should be entrusted with it. Mm. And I think that's one of the key things about whenever you take on someone else's brand is like there's stakeholders there who love it, who it's extremely valuable to, who have ideas about it and so you can't just like take the logo and hope for the best you need to involve them in the process so Frogger was one that came through as I said that ha- happenstance like seeing the sign at MIP and just believing in it but then there are others that came about through relationships so Dirty Dancing is one where came about through um, my relationship with Jen O'Connell who was running um, Lionsgate at the time and we started wrapping their formats in Australia. So anything oh, that was okay. Okay. we represented in Australia. And we were looking through everything that Lionsgate had. And I said, has anyone attempted to sell, you know, an unscripted version of Dirty Dancing? And she said, No, but if you can get it away in Australia, go for it so we did we launched uh, we we kind of developed it we sold it in australia was there any
0: was, was there any impediment to doing that in australia because here it, it would be at first, if that was the first iteration of it, yeah. you'd have to go through the motion picture department. You'd have to talk to all these other people that were worried like, will this like in any way cannibalize yeah. feature works down the road? In Australia, did you just kind of have like a green light? Like, yeah, we've got the license. It, it, to- it
1: was, listen, it was, there was, yeah, there was definitely um, some stakeholder meetings that needed to take place because once okay. again, like if a, if a property is worth its weight in gold, it's definitely got stakeholders surrounding right. it that, right. that need to be um, brought in. And once again, it was about, know you need to get them on board before you take it out and you need to have them as you know as passionate and as and believers as as you are so that was one yes we got the stakeholders on board got it on in australia and the great thing about that is then we had this like this version which was i think beautifully made that we could take back to everyone say hey your trust was um thanks for putting in your trust and and i think we delivered We now have a property to take out. And obviously we sold that show to Fox thereafter. It's been (laughs) sold in the UK. It's been sold internationally. So that's how um, uh, the real Dirty Dancing happening. And Magic Mike occurred because of, I think, the success of the real Dirty Dancing. Warner Brothers um, approached us. We have a great relationship with Darnell and his team and said, we love what you did with that brand. Let's talk about, you know, doing it. Oh, wow. And then Jen
0: O'Connell was at HBO Max. Yeah, At the
1: time. So she, she she was aware of our sensitivities around that brand, right? And then the real love boat was one. Please of those tell me
0: brands. all about this. Tell me all about this, Chris. The real I, love boat.
1: I, yes, uh, I mean, so we talk about you know the influence of pop culture has on on you know how you create, and how do you iterate? Um, that show was on four o'clock every day in Australia. I'd come home from school, you know, I'd get a snack and I'd watch the Love Boat. Um, really. And- yeah. It was on repeats every day at four o'clock. Um, and that, you know, that theme song, I won't sing it cause I have a terrible voice, but like, that theme song just gets into your head and like literally when I'd be on a boat somewhere, I just start humming it to myself. So that show I guess was always in my subconscious as like this kind of this great brand that was all about sort of, you know, going on this, these amazing voyages and these romances and it was fun and had heart. Um, and I, and it was like one of those days that I blocked out and I said, this is, you know, this is one of those days where we, we kind of come up with something and we're looking at, you know, the relationship genre is so crowded. And I, you know, literally just wrote, you know, as one of one of the options, the love boat, the real love boat. And then once again, it was going on a journey and that one was almost a year of working with the various rights right holders involved. You know, the, the, I wasn't the first person to ever think of a unscripted version of the Love Boat, but I was probably one of the first pe- people to um, get the stakeholders to believe in our vision. And, and I think one
0: and one success allows you to make the pitch for another, right? That's like right. I, I, that's I don't know right. the timing of it all, but you would have to think that the success of Holy Moly allows you to go into a meeting with Konami and say, "Look exactly. at Holy Moly! This is what we can do with Frogger," right? Yeah. And the success, yeah. like you said, of Dirty Dancing leads to Warner Brothers calling you for Magic Mike, and now you've got two scripted properties now that you've adapted. By the time you try to make make a pitch for Love Boat,
1: yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And 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 that's the thing is, you know, you're only as good as the execution of your last show. Yeah, because you know people can e- people can easily just call up exactly what you've done, and they can Google the reviews, and that's one of the things that as a creative and as the person who develops and and sells the shows i'm so lucky that i have this incredible team led by paul franklin and and you know our amazing executive producers supervising executive producers who deliver on my ideas because you're right i could i could maybe sell the first one but unless that's executed to the highest ability uh, highest of anyone's ability and with great production values no one's buying the second um so yes you you know it's it's your portfolio that kind of is going to be your you know your best sales tool
0: what what can you tell me about love boat i know it doesn't come out for some time yeah. is there any details on the format itself you can give me like speaking broadly or is it all kind of under wraps right now
1: no i mean there, there's a bit out there um you know the, sh- the the cruise that we shot the show on was through the mediterranean so nice. you can imagine some of the incredible uh, the incredible locations we visit um, whether that be in Greece, France, Turkey, it's, you know, stunning, stunning backdrop. Um, the other thing that we really wanted to tap into, and I've talked about nostalgia, but, you know, the, the nostalgic elements of the original. So you can look forward to hearing, you know, the original theme song, you know, all the original graphics, those, you know, those big kind of block colours. Um, there's a lot of cheesiness, there's a lot of heart to it, there's a lot of comedy Um, One of the things that I loved about the original was you had this crew who were playing Cupid, setting all the people up, you know, and we do the same. So we've got a captain, a bartender. Oh, you do? Oh yeah. And they are playing Cupid with our singles. So they're setting up the dates. They're setting up, you know, people, you know, people with each other. And I think it's like pulling in those kind of those nods to the original that hopefully will satisfy you know, fans of the 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 first iteration and hopefully garden
0: new fans with ours. Oh my God, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Um, I Before you go, because I know you're a very busy man and I appreciate you giving me so much of your time. Um, Just for the people listening, because the people who listen to this uh, podcast are from, you know, the season to the people that are just getting into the business or, yep. or want to break through. In terms of you being such a highly successful seller and creator, is there any sort of, like specific pitch philosophy or rules of thumb you use when actually pitching we haven't talked about like being in the yeah. room yet in terms of like presentation we've talked about having great materials yeah like i'll go first like i have found sometimes i am most successful taking out a pitch if i open it with a personal anecdote that is tied to the project itself right yeah. like we we have this show coming out on netflix um not sure when this will drop but it's called dated and related
1: and oh yeah. It's a, yeah. I've seen the
0: trailer. It looks great. It's a da- dating show and brothers and sisters are trapped on a dating show together. And I started the pitch meetings by first explaining the fact that I'm the youngest of three. My yeah. older brother is seven years older than me. My sister is five years older than me. And I would watch as a youngin. I would watch my older siblings who are only two years apart. Anytime that their social circles would intersect um and my brother would date one of my sister's friends it would just wreak havoc on our household <laughs> and and i i would talk and i I told about a specific I talked about a specific story in every pitch meeting about how we're getting ready to go on a family vacation in a motorhome where we're going to be gone for like 5 weeks driving around America and my sister is throwing a fit on our driveway refusing to share a motorhome with my brother because he had finger quotes dated one of her friends right yeah. And I talked about how my favorite part of every living in a house show, whether it's Jersey Shore or the real world, is when somebody's sibling comes to visit the house and inevitably hooks up with one of the roommates and all hell breaks loose. And I was thinking, well, what if we have like eight examples of that trapped in a show? And because I had that personal experience and and they they could tell it came from a place that I know intimately, it got over well in, in meetings as opposed to me just like walking and saying, all right, here's a format. So yeah. that's just something I try now to find in everything we take out. Because again, like you said, like, if I'm not passionate about it, why should they be? So I usually try to open it up with some sort of personal anecdote that is briefer than what I just did. Uh, that was very long winded, but I try to use that as a rule of thumb, just give me a little something extra attached to the pitch. Is there anything you found works for you? Anything you can pass on to other people who want to be more successful when they go into the room?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great pitch, by the way. So I'm definitely going to be watching that. <laughs> um, and I can relate. I've got an older sister. So uh, I've experienced that too. <laughs> you, I mean, what you described re- 100% goes to the core of what I was saying earlier is, you know, your own, you know, we personally and my advice would be people who really want to take developing and selling seriously is you need to be passionate about it. You need to, you know, live, eat and breathe the shows. And what you just described is a great example of it is that when, you you know, they could tell that you had a real emotional investment in that show because you'd lived it. You know, you were passionate about it. So that's absolutely at the heart of how we pitch. And I think really important. Practically speaking, everyone who takes pitches is really busy and they're gonna see a lot of pictures, and you should think about not wasting their time. And what I mean by that is I've I've received pictures where people are almost ambiguous and mysterious at the start. And I think they think this is this technique. They're like, imagine a world where you know, they it's layered and it's you're trying to kind of figure out what this show is. I think very quickly, I'm thinking in the first two minutes, they need to know what this show is because they need to frame it in their head and they need to imagine it. So I, I very quickly get the idea out in front of them and I don't make it mysterious. I don't make it complicated. It's like in one sentence, this is what the show is. This is what your billboard is. Then once that everyone in the room understands that and has that clear, you can build on top of it. And it's, you know, you're, you've got a foundation to build from. But if they're not, you know, if they're not understanding that co- that cohesive like log line early on, I think it's really hard to get them back.
0: Yeah. It's such a great point because I don't think anybody ever, I don't think anybody ever hooked an executive at minute 14 no. of the pitch, of the pitch meeting. It, it either happens in the first four minutes. Yeah. Or, or it's not going to happen at all in terms yeah. of like a network executive leaning in already yeah. deciding that they like this general idea, right? Yeah,
1: a- a- absolutely. And the other thing I would say is, you know, it, it, you need to think about more than episode one. And what I mean by that is, is you don't need to lay out a full series map and, you know, the the what happens in act four of episode six, but you can't just, Go in there with a gimmick, um, and I see a lot of pictures that come into us. That you go, okay, like cool, like I can kind of see where this might go. What happens next? And and there's a little bit of like, well, that's up to you, you know. Like there's a, well, that's kind of what you guys do, or you know, I will figure it out. Like they don't, they don't want to figure it out. That's that's your job as the production company to figure it out for the network. So you know, of course you need to collaborate, but really come up with a kind of a, 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 an arc of where this is going and, and you know, and, and even season two, like I, I love going and season two, we could do this. Once again, you don't need to lay out a huge kind of, you know, five page map, but give it some thought, give it some thought before walking in because no one wants to do a one and done season. That, that doesn't work for anyone. So if you haven't thought about it, you can't expect them to believe that they
0: will be one. Chris. You're the best man. I appreciate you doing this. This was great. Uh,
1: listen, it was great to chat. Um, I, you know, I really enjoyed hearing your philosophies too. So, um, anytime.
0: Awesome man. Well, I'll see. I'll see you around. Uh, hopefully, one day at the uh, drunken MIPCOM nights, if uh, those ever happen again. Really? That's
1: right. We'll get drunk and then we'll run through the Palais and we'll try and find the next big thing. We'll just, we'll just randomly look up and try and look at various signs to to figure out if we can figure hey. out. To, and it's it, format, and
0: it's gonna be like Castlevania. is gonna be a sign. I mean, <laughs> yeah, just...
1: yeah, that's right. Pac Man. Oh, I think Met- that's already done. Super Metroid. Mario already done.
0: Metroid. <laughs> there, it was staring yeah. us right in the face all this time. Exactly. Uh, yeah, nice yeah, meeting you, yeah, sir. Right.
1: Yeah, great, it's great to hang out. Appreciate it. All right, talk to you later. Okay, yeah, bye.